0: Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week we gather on the traditional, ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray and engage with Scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of Scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out UHail.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our scripture reading today comes from John, the first chapter of John, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was, with from, was wet from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and, and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you see, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Holy God, you call and claim us. Commission us to tell others of your goodness. And so we pray that you would help us this morning to know you better. That we might tell of you accurately, that we might tell the world of your goodness. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. That they be acceptable in your sight. We ask in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the the Gospel of John uh, can be kind of divisive. You know, some people love it, and, well, others others have questions. Some people are totally taken by the soaring claims that John makes, that Jesus is the Word who was with God and was God, that he's the one through whom all things are created, that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, the way to the Father, the one who came that we might have life and have it to the full. There's a reason that John gets used in so many tracts and uh, uh, evangelistic tools, because these are these are big claims, right? And some people love that, and others think John is maybe a bit of a show-off. He's always doing his own thing. The, the other gospels all tell the same story in the same basic order, with some artistic flourishes, but. We call them the Synoptic Gospels because they can be seen together. That's what that word means, Synoptic Gospels. They make sense together. But John feels free to mix everything up and tell different stories and add in conversations no one else seems to know about. And to say that he enjoys artistic flourishes is is sort of like saying the Sistine Chapel has a nice paint job. Now, for a long time, I, I, I would have been firmly in the second camp. You know, like, I'm okay with the whole canon of Scripture, but I'll take Matthew, Mark, and Luke first. They they seem to have their feet a little more firmly planted on the ground. But I have to say that over the years, as I've spent more and more time with John, I've come to love John more and more. And here's why. Because he's just relentless in his desire to see heaven and earth all mixed up. Now, just when it seems like he's about to soar off into the ether with the angel choirs, we find him in the dust with John the Baptist. He says that Jesus is the eternal, creative Word of God, and then all of a sudden the Word becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood. In John's Gospel, Jesus will tell us that if we've seen Him, we have seen God. And then He'll stoop down to wash our feet like a common household slave. He'll tell us that He's the resurrection and the life, even as He's on His way to the cross, only to be wrapped in grave clothes. Now, the other Gospels don't say less about the wildness of God in Christ, about the fullness of God dwelling bodily in Jesus, as the letter of the Colossians puts it, they're just kind of quieter about it, right? They tell it slant <laughs> in Emily Dickinson's great line. Not John, though. John comes in with, uh, with a marching band, with trumpets blaring, saying, look, this is what it means to say that God is with us and for us, that God loves this world, is making all things new. Pay attention. Pay attention. He has absolutely no qualms about entwining the things of heaven and and earth and he lets us know it. And honestly, I I think I need more of that in my life. I'm way too rational and cynical. I'm mostly trained in critical thought, and so what doesn't make sense to me is easily disregarded. I'm too comfortable with my own feelings and expectations. as, As long as things are going more or less the way I expect, then I can be happily in my own little world. I'm easily satisfied with my limited view of things. I I like the lie that we can be in control of everything in our lives, including how much of God we get. I don't think I'm alone in that. But I've said before, and I'll say it again, that a God who can't or doesn't or won't do more than we can expect or imagine isn't worth getting out of bed for in the morning. Certainly not on a day like this. You know, a gospel that's just a good idea or a good story but not really good news, world-changing news, isn't worth much. I need folks like John to wake me up to the wild realities of God, to remind uh, me that there isn't anywhere or any time or any one, any way that God isn't living and active and making all things new, whatever the day's headlines say. And of course, on the other end of things, we can always be at risk of being kind of captive to wishful thinking and blissful ignorance in the church. We can end up with toothless platitudes and a hope that's only otherworldly. But John will have none of that. There's still the cross and death and tomb to remind us that whatever God is up to, God is up to in this world, broken and battered. This is the only gospel in which we're told that Jesus weeps. Now John, for all of his theological wonder, is is never caught floating kind of above the ground. Instead, he is, as Walter Brueggemann puts it, odd to heaven and rooted in earth, which is exactly what it means to be in the company of Jesus wherever we are. Now, today's story comes just after John the Baptist, who's about as earthy a fellow as you can get, all covered in camel's hair with breath smelling like locusts, right after he's yelled, uh, Twice, because no one listened the first time. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And eventually, a, a couple folks follow Jesus, and pretty soon he's got his first three disciples, including Peter, who's going to be the rock of the church. Uh, so things are kind of going well. Things are—he's uh, off to a pretty good start as he as he begins to take on the sin of the world. <laughs> now, I, I don't know—I I don't know what I imagine should come next, but I don't think it's what does, <laughs> which I love. Right, John tells us that the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Decided to go to Galilee. Like, there's something so nonchalant about that, that that it's easy to overlook. But I don't want to overlook it. Because, see, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for the idea of strategic plans, right? I'm not very good at thinking that way, so I, I idolize people who are. I'm impressed by people who are super organized and always know the next step and have a diagram for everything. I wish I was one of those people who could have sermon series planned out a year in advance with a five-year vision and deadlines and deliverables. I love working with people like that. Some of you are people like that. I need that in my life, but unfortunately, like everywhere I go, (laughs) there I am. That kind of thinking takes a lot of work for me, and I'm still not very good at it. Uh, and I just don't seem to be wired that way no matter how many books I read or courses I take or cohorts I join. Which is not always bad. I'm pretty good at going with the flow, but it is sometimes a little discouraging, I have to admit. Which may be why I'm so taken with this kind of throwaway line. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee. I mean, maybe there was a strategy, but John is pretty comfortable explaining things when they need to be explained, so so it feels like Galilee was kind of as good as anywhere, right? He could have gone to Jerusalem, which would have been a way better strategic move for his movement. He could have gone to Bethany, which is one of his most favorite places in the world to go. I can't help but think, or at least hope, that John is telling us that, that Galilee is as good as anywhere. Now the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard says that Christians should get together, pay attention to what Jesus does, and then go and do that. <laughs> like, maybe we don't need demographic studies and silver bullet business plans that look like corporations. Maybe we're not supposed to look like any other organization. Maybe we don't really need to strategize discipleship. Instead, we might just choose to go to the closest coffee shop, or the park, or take the bus, or go to our ordinary, everyday jobs with our eyes wide open for what God is about to do in front of us. And don't get me wrong, of course there's time and place for prayerful discernment and good planning and strategic stewardship, but maybe in the company of Jesus the first goal is just to be ready for the possibility that God has already gone out ahead of us, that in Jesus' light we can be ready to be in wondered at the blessed miracle of the people we're going to encounter. Wherever we are, we can learn that the ordinary, everyday stuff of life is the very building material of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the next line says that Jesus found Philip. It's not at all clear that he was looking for Philip. There's nothing to suggest that Philip was someone worth looking for. It's almost like he tripped over him and invited him into the gospel adventure. Come follow me. Follow you where? It doesn't matter. It's going to be wild. I think John wants us eyes wide open as we go out into the world, attentive, ready to see what God sees and get in on what God's doing. Now, my friend Daniel often prayer walks places. He, he walks around slowly praying, let me see what you see. It's his way of putting himself in the way of God's presence, God's beauty, God's image in everyone he meets, trusting that whatever God is up to, it's here and now. Not somewhere more exotic, or with more interesting people. I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that this apparently chance encounter with Philip, who doesn't, there's no indication that he's a particularly interesting guy. This chance encounter turns into a lifelong relationship of cosmic importance. This changes the world as one more person hears and heeds the call to follow Jesus into the way and the truth and the life for which we're made. The good news is taking shape in another life. And then as if to underline the, whatever, the fact that whatever God is doing, God is not particularly picky about where God does it or who with, we're introduced to Nathaniel, who thinks that God should be a little more discerning. Now Philip runs to find his friend Nathaniel, who's apparently sitting under a fig tree. and In the Bible, the image of sitting under a fig tree is, is an, an, an image of satisfaction. Of security, of ease, right? Nathaniel is someone who's got himself figured out. He he knows the law and the prophets. He's a good and faithful man, someone in whom there is no deceit, as Jesus will say. Nathaniel calls it like he sees it. But for all his conviction and confidence, he's a little short-sighted. Now, when Philip tells him that they found the one whom the scriptures promised, the Messiah that his name is Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathaniel's totally dismissive. Right? Like, like how could you be so foolish, so gullible to think that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world, could possibly come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? As if there are places in the world where God cannot be. And Nathanael knows where to expect the God he's expecting, but not the God who defies Our expectations. And I love Philip's response. He doesn't meet Nathaniel's dismissiveness with a dismissiveness of his own, but with an invitation. This is a truly Christian posture, not anger or judgment or defensiveness when people dismiss us, but invitation. Philip doesn't try to plead his case. He doesn't explain why Jesus doesn't introduce himself as the eternal creative Word of God. Instead, he instead goes with son of Joseph from Nazareth. Philip doesn't threaten Nathaniel with the consequences of not believing what he says. He just says, come and see. You know, the best way to tell people about Jesus is to introduce them to Jesus. <laughs> There's a strategic plan for you. And we know that when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he, he does see. And he's dropped to his knees in wonder, love, and praise. And here we could learn from Nathaniel. When Jesus catches us off guard, when he messes with our fig tree comfort, when he shows up in places and in people that we really wish he would avoid, the only appropriate response is to marvel at the wild grace of God with us. We can learn something from Nathaniel. We can learn to be surprised by the hope and wonder of God. This may be especially important for those of us who've been hanging around for a while. Even more important for those of us who can use fancy theological words in a sentence. Now, too often in the church we give the impression uh, that we've got God figured out instead of admitting that we're trying to bear witness to something we don't quite understand and can't control. There's a story, uh, I love the story, a, a little later in John's Gospel where Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath. And the keepers of the way things are having none of it. Right? Like, I mean, first of all, where does he get off healing people without a license? And second of all, why is he doing these things on the Sabbath? And the scene escalates pretty quickly, and the, the formerly blind guy is going to get kicked out of the synagogue if he doesn't you know, speak out against Jesus and explain who Jesus is and what he's done. And the guy gives my, one of my favorite answers. He says, I don't know much about Jesus. What I do know is I was blind, and now I see. Someone should write a song about that. I think it's more or less Christian witness. You know, in the presence of Jesus, we see more clearly. We see ourselves and the world more clearly. We come to recognize that the glory of God is as likely to show up in Nazareth as anywhere. And our job is not to convince others, but to live what we believe and invite them to come and see it for themselves. Learn to see how heaven and earth are entwined. The full height and depth and length and width of the love of God for us, the boundaries of which will always exceed our expectations and our limitations and our striving. And I love the way that this interaction with Jesus and Nathaniel ends, with this marvelous promise that Nate and the others will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's kind of weird, it's not a hint at some future private revelation or some Uh, ecstatic vision. It's an allusion to the story of Jacob's ladder way back in the book of Genesis. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, the the, the father of all the tribes of Israel, Uh, but here he's on the run from his brother Esau, whom he tricked out of his inheritance and who is quite determined to kill him. And So Jacob gets far enough away that he's ready to hunker down for the night and he he sets up camp in the middle of nowhere. place that used to be called Luz. <laughs> and during the night, he has this super vivid dream where he sees the heavens open and a great ladder and the angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. Then the writer of Genesis says this. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. He said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jesus knows that Nathanael knows that story. And I think it's Jesus' way of telling Nathanael that if he sticks close, if he'll follow, then he'll have to leave his fig tree behind, but he's gonna discover God in places that he could never have imagined. Surely the Lord is in this place, and that place, and that place too, and I didn't know it. The invitation as Jesus calls his first disciples and as he's been calling disciples ever since is to come and see, to have the eyes of our hearts and the eyes in our heads enlightened to see him and through him just how far God will go to get mixed up with this world. To expect God's presence even when we don't honestly expect it all because there's nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's to discover in Him the very gate of heaven, not as an escape hatch, but as the promise that by His Spirit, wherever we are, is where God wants to see His kingdom of love and justice and righteousness. It's to know that our prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven is taking shape in us and through us in the presence and the power of the one who has called us. We don't, or at least we shouldn't come to church. We shouldn't pray and spend time in scripture and carve out devotional times for us to check off a religious box in our already bloated schedules. This is not part of a strategic plan. We should do this to get closer to Jesus, to draw near to the one who leads us in the way of life, who helps us see things as they really are so that we can live whatever the circumstances, trusting that God really is in this place, in these people, with us and for us in ways that pull us out from under our fig trees and into the wild expanse of God's healing and hope and grace. May it be so.